no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to another episode of Media and the End of the World. Hasn't news. Ha- hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Actually, the world was supposed to end this past Saturday, or was it Sunday? Uh, because there was a, a prediction that's tied into a, a fictional uh, planet that nobody knows about that was going to crash into the Earth and end things. And it was originally supposed to happen in September, but then the person who predicted it said, no, wait, I got it wrong. It's November. Anyway, it didn't happen. So here we are uh, on the... Uh, Once again. Yes, on the, on the business end. And today we are very excited to be doing our Charles in Charge episode <laughs> of Media and the End of the World. Yeah, we have multiple Charleses to talk about, um, Charlie Rose and Charles Manson. And I have an interesting fact about Charles Manson, but I'm, I'm going to save it for a minute. <laughs> okay. I'm sure there's a, a million interesting facts about him, but I do want to go to, to Charlie Rose because uh, I feel like we had such an important piece of news come out yesterday um, that uh, multiple people, I think it was eight, had came out uh, with, with uh, claims of sexual allegations he has been suspended, and then uh, what I saw recently, he's been fired from CBS completely. Uh, and then from what I've heard, like 12 more women have came out like since the, the Washington Post story was published yesterday. So um, big day. And then he wasn't the only guy in media to have uh, sexual harassment claims come against him yesterday. We also saw Glenn Thrush of New York Times, who is on the White House beat, um, who's been betrayed uh, recently, I guess, I don't know how recently, but uh, within this, this this presidential term on SNL. So I believe uh, the, the allegations against him are before his time at the New York Times. Correct. Yes, at Politico. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, the, oh, the one other thing I wanted to mention about Charlie Rose, just just before we get too far away from it, is that Bloomberg was doing reruns of and had been doing the broadcast of the interview program, and they pulled that also. So, and kudos to all of these stations who all these media entities who responded really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was in like an hour or, two, or a couple hours of the Washington Post story dropping uh, that that we heard from PBS and CBS. And uh, and Bloomberg as well, um, but uh, we have a problem in journalism. I think it's safe to say. I don't. Know, I want actually. I probably want to say broader to media because there's been uh, a dozen or so men who've had claims against them, um, also including Lock- Lockhart Steele of Vox, uh, Michael Oreskes, uh, the NPR news chief. Uh, Obviously, we, we Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes uh, a little bit earlier, sort of pre-Harvey Weinstein. But I, you know, you know, I start to look at this from the lens of journalism education and think about what we were doing. I actually had a, a student who approached me at the late last week who was doing a project for uh, a multimedia course, and the question that she was looking at was, um, 
you know, why are there so many more females in colleges of journalism and males? Um, because historically, we, you know, we see what we see in, in our college at the University of Oklahoma is very similar to nationwide tw trends in that um, our ratio is about two to one females to males um, across, you know, the college. And, and the, the, some programs are a little bit different. I would say public relations is likely four to one female to males as well. Um, but we still have these major issues in journalism and media as far as getting women in leadership positions getting them to stay within the industry. I don't want to say getting them. I want to say providing them the opportunities for leadership positions, um, providing them the opportunities for long-term careers as well. Um, you know, and as I was reading about Charlie Rose uh, this morning about being fired from um, CBS, uh, you know, they, there's a, a sentence in, in an LA Times article that says, Rose's presence on CBS this morning signified a commitment to serious news. <laughs> you know, which is which is so stereotypical yeah. of, of I mean, you know, uh, if you look at the history of uh, gender within journalism, you know, what you saw is, you know, females were originally brought in for the softer side of news, you know, to to to, uh, to convey to the, the, the con, you know, the the household consumer. But men still got to be the serious news. And that's, um, you know, that's continued through today is that the, you know this is the guy who who almost signifies that particular role in the the history of journalism and I'd just be curious to you know to be thinking about you know how, how have you been thinking about um, how does how do we, how do we start talking about these issues early on within education of journalism it's well it's yeah I mean there's a difficult challenge involved that partially has to do with how these media organizations are going to respond to it what mechanisms they have in place to deal with people who have complaints about treatment. Um, some organizations are responding to it in a way that is actually creating a better working environment. Um, uh, there, the, it was kind of interesting that earlier, I think last week, and I can't remember exactly where I heard it, but there was a discussion about uh, HR departments because you know, a lot of these sorts of things would go through HR departments. And, of course, part of the challenge is HR departments are put in place by companies and Th th although they might be in a position where they appear to be speaking as if they're operating in your best interest as an employee who's been harassed or assaulted or is in some kind of a, an untenable, threatening situation, you know, I mean, their their check is signed by the company, and they they're ultimately, when push comes to shove, their interest is going to be, you know, for the company. So, um, so that means that the legal mechanisms become all that much more important, and then you know the sort of the value of the brand is the other thing that becomes important. And that's where you know, you kind of mentioned this earlier. The way that they're responding to this is indicating that these brands are invested in not being associated with this kind of behavior. Correct. Even if they're dependent on, you know, what what um, is often called in, do, in the documentary world the discourse of sobriety, the idea that you have to have a serious person there in a suit, and that's that's where information comes from, and it usually has to be a man and uh, has a certain kind of persona and a, and a way of coming across. And, you know, hopefully this is going to start creating the cultural conversation about how all those assumptions are built into what we expect when we turn on the news. Um, there's certainly much more, there, there's, there are much more diverse range of presenters that you have access to uh, as the information media world has expanded, which is a really good thing. You know, now is it going to have the effect of giving women access to uh, more control over the organizations in terms of how and what they produce? Yeah. And um, 
I'll be, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how long that we're going to be in this purge, you know, or, or this, this, this news cycle. Um, I am encouraged that this continues to sort of cut through, um, uh, you know, a, a media landscape that's really tough to, to enter in. And, um, you know, I mean, I've, I saw it, an article in, I believe it was in Axios, yesterday that listed I think you know 14 or 15 men that have been in the media that have been accused of it um several of which I don't know you know some of the stories I have have missed but it's something that's clearly crossed all uh has infiltrated all pieces of part of the media and and sort of as we talked about last episode as well I mean this is not something that you know is uh, isolated to media or Hollywood uh, or the rich and famous by any means. I mean, this is, this is, uh, society as we know it, but I, you know, it's, it still continues to shake me every time to hear one of these come out, you know, even the stories that don't, that don't bubble up. I've, you know, being involved in the music scene, there's been, uh, lots of accusations of, you know, bands that I'm interested in and in indie rock that, uh, you know, never will never make national news headlines, but continue to shake sort of, uh, the quote unquote scene as well. Um, I think it's yeah. I think as a uh, um, a fan, um, the the Henry Jenkins term, ACA fans, academics and fans, or just being a fan and not an academic. I think that one of the things that in in the educational context is you know dealing with the question of what do you do once that happens? Because you you can imagine uh, for each one of us, if stories came out about somebody who we hold in pretty high esteem what's what's going to happen you know what's what happens with their work what uh, what level of egregiousness means that they really need to remove themselves from a position if they happen to still be alive and and doing that kind of work um it's a question that's come up with some of the actors who have been accused uh, in domestic abuse situations um where uh what you know what role do they play in the industry and what as an audience do we do in terms of um, seeing, you know, what their, what their work is, you know, do we stop seeing Merrimack's films? Do we, um, if, if Charlie Rose did happen to conduct an interview that we found historically valuable, you know, what do we do with that? Um, yeah, you have to acknowledge it certainly. Um, you know, with a big problem for those of us who are film geeks are people like Roman Polanski and, um, uh, people who have, um, Woody Allen, people who have not, uh, and the Louis C.K. movie, which that's supposed to come out, that apparently is in in many ways kind of a reflection of some of what Woody Allen was making a film about in Manhattan, which is really, you know, um, not that far removed from what Roy Moore is doing because he was basically in a relationship with a uh, a woman who was seventeen in the film, um, and it was just interesting how for years that was just never problem was never a difficulty and now it's going back and looking at all that and saying well what kind of storytelling is this what's this really implying um for a woman in our culture to you know to to have this as their representation yeah certainly you know you uh, part of the conflict in which you work through as you hear about this is how do you uh, inevitably separate the art from the artist you know how do you how do you see those as as, as two separate pieces um speaking of artists a uh this will be this will be Charlie number two. <laughs> this will be Charlie number two. <laughs> that subtle turn yeah. you just made, yeah, right, exactly. Um, who, 
who I've actually read arguments of everything behind Charles Manson uh, points back to just his desire to want to be a rock and roll star, you know? Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, knowing uh, the interests that you have, we, you know, we also saw the, the passing of Charles Manson, um, who led uh, the Manson family, um, accused and tried for seven uh, killings that were committed in, in L.A. In, in August of 1969. Uh, really just such an interesting, I think what I find interesting about Charles Manson is particularly the time period in when this happened, um, the things in which he's associated with, you know, I've, you, you hear often that, uh, between this, between the ending of the Vietnam war, uh, some of the things that are, that are happening is sort of the, the end of the hippie movement kind of exiting, um, uh, the sixties itself and, and Charles Manson being a part of that, even though by no means did, did he really ever internalize any of, of sort of the, the hippie culture himself. It was, it was more like he, uh, he took, he took advantage of it. He exploited the hippie culture. Um, you know, just such a, it's interesting, fascinating story, bizarre guy, um, you know, who, uh, who led this and happened to be prosecuted during a time in which the state of California had banned the death penalty. So has spent, um, you know, his, almost his entire life in jail. If you look at his history beforehand, I mean, he had, you know, spent half his life in jail before this had even happened. Um, and has, you know, since sort of rotted away, uh, in a jail cell, um, with, with others that were involved in it. But, you know, be curious to, th- you know, hear, hear from you. What was your, what was your, what was your thoughts? What were you reflecting on hearing the news of Charles Manson passing? <laughs> well, they, yeah, it, I mean, it is kind of a, a, a marker in a way of um, a cultural transformation that happened at the very tail end of the late 60s. I'd be that, you know, thinking about the 60s or the 70s or people nostalgically now talking about the aughts, right? I mean, because we're at that point now. But, you know, when you're thinking about where does a, where does a historical period begin and end, and there was something between Manson, um, the, 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 the Manson-related crimes and the conspiracy theory families, cult stuff that was tied to that, and then the uh, incident at Altamont where a, um, uh, an individual was knifed to death by uh, um, a Hell's Angels member um, at the end of a Rolling Stones concert. And there's a film called Gimme Shelter, which is a film about the concert, um, where you actually kind of see the murder take place. And one of the sequences at the very end of the film is the Rolling Stones in a screening room looking at the footage of the murder happen. Um, so it, it's not, not just that these were kind of these, um, amazing moments that were kind of closing off this cultural thing of whatever the 1960s was kind of bringing it to, uh, okay, where did we get? They're also so intensely mediated. They're so tied into the media. Um, you know, Manson, essentially a lot of what rolled out from that, there were, um, films made supposedly the next Quentin Tarantino film is going to be a Manson related kind of project there um, I can't remember so there was a double feature called that they changed the titles of one film was called I drink your blood and one film was called I eat your skin this was a drive-in double feature Jeez. one of the greatest ads ever um, but one of the films and I think it was I drink your blood was actually based on a, a Manson cult kind of setup. and there's a James Van Berber a very low budget film um, of it also in addition to um, other, you know, what, what, what now in the world of um, 
of uh, reality television and uh, true crime television, which there's so much of that these things keep on reoccurring. Um, but again, these were at a time when the culture was becoming aware of itself as as mediated. So Altamont, the film, Manson, the, the television persona, the way that the trial was conducted, you know, which was not too long after the Chicago 7 trial, which was another media spectacle of how this this cultural conflict that surrounded Vietnam was playing itself out across the country on television. So, um, so that, so what I think is interesting to me about it is thinking about how or what was happening. These seem to be in a moment when the culture, you know, you could say from the Kennedy Nixon debates up to these points at the end of the 1960s, we're, we're beginning to figure out what television was going to do to the culture, um, and trying to begin to take some kind of responsibility for what it meant. Yeah, I think what's you know also interesting is towards towards the end of the the '60s, Hollywood is sort of now just starting to catch up with kind of what's happening in cult, counterculture. Um, certainly, trying to suppress it as much as they can, but you start to see movies like Bonnie and Clyde come out, you know, and um, and you mentioned Nixon, which is has an interesting piece in this as well. I mean, the the theater of the courtroom, what's going on? You know, Charles Manson wanted to defend himself. Uh, the women that were involved, uh, you know, uh, carving crosses into their their foreheads and and making scenes the whole time. But one of the things that he did was he held up a copy of the L.A. Times in which had the headline Manson guilty Nixon declares, you know, uh, <laughs> trying to <clears throat> trying trying to, you know, per- persuade uh, the jury uh, to, to kind of already take a side. And so they can kind of, you know, declare a, a mistrial or whatever it was. But, you know, there there really was sort of a, a glamorization of what was happening within the Manson trials as well. Um, and as you mentioned, there's just been so much that sort of spawns off from it. I mean, he's written his own autobiography. I think nearly everyone involved has written something about it. Um, but it's just been so, so curiously followed, um, you know, because it uh, it does really speak to a specific time. I'm really interested in sort of the what's happening within the 60s in the San Francisco area um, and these killings that, that end up taking place in, in, uh, in L.A. as well. So. Yeah, there was there, there are two other little things about it that I think are interesting. Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot one could say about it. One was, um, you know, the, the effect that the murders had on Roman Polanski since he was mentioned earlier because um, the the film that he made after Sharon Tate, his wife, was you know as most people right. know, um, one of the victims um, was pregnant at the time. There's actually um, anyway. I was just going to tell a little Jersey Kaczynski story, but nobody cares about Jersey Kaczynski stories anymore. He's a very entry. He's the one. Did you ever see the film Being There? No. With Peter Sellers. Anyway, so uh, he was on. He was actually in one of his novels. He writes about having been invited to go there, and he was supposed to be there that that night, the night that the crimes happened. Uh, but he didn't go for whatever reason. So he, um, but he, so he's a great novelist who, of course, as these things happen, ended up killing himself by pulling a plastic bag over his head. So there. Um, but anyway, so, but the film that Polanski made after this happened was his version of Macbeth, which is an amazing, mm-hmm. and again, you know, we have to keep in mind that Roman Polanski is caught up in all of these, um, um, problems with statutory rape, sexual assault, um, and very complicated court cases and went through a lot of years where people were essentially defending him because of his abilities as a director. And Macbeth is, a, is, is an amazingly 
profoundly violent film that was um, very much in line with a lot of the responses. A lot of filmmakers were were hashing out in the in the early '70s as a response to this culture that was just being traumatized over and over and over again. Um, and so it's a very traumatizing version of Macbeth. Um, and uh, uh, so it's a very it's, it's a very odd piece of, of media that stands out. Yeah, I was I mean, just thinking about the the fact that I have on Charles Manson was that he I mean his his he was originally not named as a kid. He was born to I think his mom was fifteen or sixteen. He never knew who his biological father was, um, but she she didn't give him a name. And on his birth certificate, it says no name. Um, and I can't remember the the history of of where he adopted the name Charles or Manson or where those came from. But I think I. I remember vaguely that it had something to do with his mom knowing uh, someone and sort of naming him after that or eventually uh, adopting the name itself. But similarly, he is a man who um, historically just went through an incredible amount just around a, a large amount of sexual violence in uh, boys' schools that he was in, spending a lot of time in prison in his early adolescence as well. Um, and really sort of, uh, I think people would argue, shaped the... Uh, the persona that he that he gained uh, and portrayed later in life as well, um, but you know a man who was had one one of the most disturbing childhoods that I probably uh, read about. Mm-hmm. Well, his his one thing we need to add also is that his desire to um, where his motivation about the rock and roll business um, in the uh, in Ranker.com, they have an article about the songs written by Charles Manson that super famous bands covered, and uh, it includes the Beach Boys doing uh, "Never Learn Not to Love," yeah. Guns N' Roses "Look at Your Game Girl," Marilyn Manson doing "Six City," uh, the Lemonheads doing "Your Home Is Where You're Happy," Brian Jonestown Massacre doing "Arkansas." And then Crispin Glover on one of his bizarro projects, uh, doing "Never Say Never to Always." So um, yeah, he has he has a really interesting connection to the the Beach Boys and the the Wilson brothers. I can't remember Brian Wilson's brother's name, but the the lesser of the two Wilsons. Um, and then obviously uh, a lot of I mean he, he you know he claims that. Uh, the murders, uh, you know, he, he he believed that the White Album from the Beatles uh, was speaking to him uh, mm-hmm. in which uh, that he believed that they needed to start a race war, um, that he wanted to start this white versus blacks, um, and uh, specifically the song Helter Skelter, which ends up being uh, written in blood uh, on a refrigerator of yeah. a couple of victims. P- possibly the worst example of media analysis in all of history was his way of understanding the White Album. He just, you know, didn't get it. He just missed the boat on that. But yeah, just in a in a really kind of large, awful, horrible way, as it ended up happening. So that was our 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 Charles in charge. Two Charles. Two Charles, right? Um, and I'm sure there will be more to come um, in terms of um, the ongoing um, exposure of people who have. Um, you know, who've been involved in uh, the exploitation of, of men and women in, in the media. And it's going to roll into different media as time passes. As you were mentioning, the Glenn Thrush thing brings journalism back into the center of it. It's going to move into politics, I'm sure, uh, as it did with Al Franken, and, and will continue to. So like I said, I think one of the lessons is, you know, be prepared for how you're going to think about when somebody you've held in high esteem ends up being part of this. 
Um, and additionally, the you know the other interesting question is what is it that we're doing in terms of how we are constructing the idea of masculinity in our culture to make this all seem like it's okay and that it was glossed over for so many years while it was happening. Um, you know what, and and how can we start thinking about constructing the idea of what men are differently so that there's less of a tendency for this kind of thing to happen. There was a, actually a very interesting article I was just looking at um, earlier about uh, evangelical communities that encourage, and this has a little more to do with the Roy Moore situation, that um, encourage uh, relationships between older men and young teenage girls, um, which is a, a you know a, a creepy, creepy, creepy thing um, that, you know, again, is something that uh, seems like it should be fairly easy, but Clearly, there are big parts of culture, in, and particularly in the evangelical world in the United States, that, that um, think that's okay. Um, so that's, that's something that's probably going to become more of an issue, too. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. it's just more good news. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, a couple other, uh, was there anything else you wanted to add on nope. that? Okay, so a couple of other things that, that uh, are certainly things that you want to be paying attention to uh, that you won't want to. That neither none of us want to because they are so boring, but um, but they're they're extremely critical. One is the Justice Department uh, suing to block the AT and T uh, acquisition of Time Warner, which is um, you know an amazingly huge media merger, um, and and it's it's a a lot of the the discussion of it has to do with antitrust, which is the idea that AT and T would own way too much in terms of. Uh, content production and content distribution, and so they, there's been a request that they actually cut, get rid of some of, you know, spin off some of what they own to do that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we we have uh, an FCC that is about to dismantle the rest of the net neutrality uh, rules, and they've already done some things to dismantle some of the ownership rules. So while on the one hand they're working in an antitrust direction regarding AT&T and Time Warner. Um, on the other hand, elements of the government are actually making it easier for a company like Sinclair to own larger and larger and larger parts of our broadcast spectrum uh, and not have to have it be one of, the, one of the rules they removed was that there had to be a local studio tied into media ownership, and that's been dissolved. So the FCC is making some moves in that direction, um, as well as what they're going to do to net neutrality. Should I explain net neutrality a little bit do you think please <laughs> or do you please. want to no, or? no no um i mean yeah i i can i can give a very low level explanation of net neutrality um which basically means that every you know no matter what you're consuming from a broadband perspective you're gonna you're gonna be getting it equally um that uh you know that particularly um internet companies cannot be paying more money to a distributor of uh, of uh, internet access to allow you to get faster streams. You might think of, you know, uh, Netflix uh, is a good one that comes up as a as a constant example that you know if Netflix wants to funnel as much money as they can to a uh, an AT and T uh, or a cable uh, company to make sure that you get Netflix at a super fast speed. Um, but you don't get the rest of the internet at a, you know, a faster speed. Is that like a, is that, a, is that a fair explanation of, yeah, of yeah. how I see I mean, it? I think that's a reasonable thing. I, you know, one thing I can say for a fact is that, um, there was a, uh, AT&T, which owns right now owns DirecTV and there's the, um, the streaming version called DirecTV now, 
uh, on which you can access a, a channel called Audience, which is an AT&T proprietary content channel. And their uh, claim to some attention was being the provider of the television adaptation, television if you want to call it that, but the, the uh, television, television version of Mr. Mercedes, which is a trilogy of Stephen King novels about a uh, detective and a person who is a uh, basically commits a reason he's called Mr. Mercedes is he steals a Mercedes basically and plows through a crowd of people who are waiting at a job fair and kills a very large number of them. Um, and uh, so this was running on uh, on the streaming service that's that 18 so it's on AT&T's channel and we're accessing it through AT&T's DirecTV Now streaming service and I can tell you that there is an equal opportunity being given to uh, buffering on that channel mm -hmm. because there was often on our AT&T wireless, on AT&T broadband service, watching DirecTV Now, their streaming service, we got this magic little box that would just sit there <laughs> and spin. And I thought, you guys are fantastic because when it comes to net neutrality, everything can be buffered, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think we we'd mentioned in episode one, I'd, uh, we went through an op-ed by Tim Wu, uh, who I mentioned has a book called The Master Switch, which has sort of historically goes through all of these different mediums um, through uh, through radio, through television, um, how everything sort of starts off in this open, uh, decentralized nature and eventually becomes incredibly centralized as well. And so, you know, I've always... I think part of his argument is this is going to happen to the internet um, unless we find some way to stop it. Um, but I've always expected that, you know, eventually at some point we lose the battle on net neutrality, um, if only to uh, incompetence from the federal government at some point where it's just something they, they stop caring about as much. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm curious to see where this this inevitably ends up. Well, the, yeah, the, and the hint for this, again, and, and under the category of boring aspects of this, has to do with whether the, the, the classification of broadband service falls under um, what they call uh, Title II classification, which basically means that uh, Internet access is like water, gas, natural gas, right. electricity, and therefore is, is constructed under a bunch of different rules that basically treat it as utility. Um, which, you know, I think arguably it is. I think to think that it's a privilege is insane because you simply can't function in today's world um, without broadband access. You, you, there's too much content that's being delivered. There's too many educational processes that uh, children are dependent on um, to make sense out of it. And uh, the, the rhetoric that's going to be built up around it by the current FCC chair is going to be to suggest that that this is kind of meddling and it's kind of taking choice away. That's usually how it's framed. Like, you know, you should have a choice of providers. And um, the problem is that the historical example of the way that the cable television industry developed was more or less a history of collusion, right? The companies didn't really directly compete because they divided up territories. And so, you know, arguably the same thing is going to happen here because there are and that's one of the claims that, that the AT&T people are making is that AT&T and Time Warner are not direct competitors. So it's really not an antitrust thing. But that's really kind of a disingenuous argument given the way AT&T provides content and given the dimensions of Time Warner's involvement in, um, in, in the distribution of material as well. Yeah, and I think 
you know, the, the choice argument only comes in. I mean, I, even I, we're not even at a, a point where I think the infrastructure exists to where everyone has fair amount of choices. I mean, we, we're, we're still not at a, a part of complete saturation as far as access to broadband. Um, you know, so, um, it'll, it'll, it'll be really sad if this continues to go its direction. Um, so we're, we're at, we're at a point where we can, we can continue to move on or we can wrap it up right here. What do you think? I, I think, well, I think we could wrap it up right here. Okay. Great. I think, cause I think we've taken enough of people's valuable time to, um, to sort of fill them in on what we've been paying attention to, um, in terms of media stories. Fortunately, we never run shy. This is going to keep happening. Um, because there's just an awful lot out there. I know. I feel like I feel like since the beginning we wanted to talk about the second season of Stranger Things. Things <laughs> just keep popping up. <laughs> we will do that. So, so for our next episode, here's a little teaser. We are going to talk about addictive television. We're going to talk about Stranger Things season two. We're going to talk about Alias Grace. So, if you haven't seen it, watch Please, it. Please, yes. Please watch it because it will. It is so critically important to what's happening with these. Uh, with with silencing of women and sexual harassment and whether women should be believed. It's very critically about those sorts of things. Yes, specifically Alias Grace, what you're talking about there. And and people who might not want to jump into season two immediately of Stranger Things, knowing they have to watch the first season, Alias Grace is a Netflix miniseries. So uh, it's a total of six 45-minute episodes. Uh, it's not... You know, a uh, you're not you're not jumping into to eight seasons of of Lost to to have to catch up on this right. conversation. Like it's <laughs> it's uh, there's no polar bears. That's right. There's no <laughs> right. So. No aliens. <laughs> there's no uh, upside down. It's well, there is upside down, but it's the it's the real world of Toronto in 1843. That's a little bit of a hint. But it's and it's it's just and it's also beautifully shot. Your eyes will not be sorry that you made it made them point at this for six hours it's beautiful stuff all right so assuming that the world doesn't end we'll talk to everyone uh, on the next episode okay thank you for listening